Welcome to episode two of our four-part series on the Vanderbilt MSTP, or the MD-PhD program. Today we'll be speaking with two students who are just about to finish the entire eight-year journey of getting an MD and a PhD, Megan and Tanner Freeman. Together they'll be going on to Pittsburgh for residency and will continue their training over the years to come. During the interview, we talked about why they decided to join the MD-PhD program, what it was like to go through all eight years, and where their lives are headed after this. Stay tuned for some great insight on what it's like to be in a graduate program for eight years. My name is Ben Fensterheim, and this is But Why on WRVU. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about your experience as an MSDP student, um, how you began your journey, and how it's ending, because it is ending now, which is kind of cool. I imagine it's pretty cool. A little bittersweet. Just from the relationships you develop through the programs, we've been here for eight years for you and nine years for me, at the same time, excitement of the next journey. That's good. It's good that it's bittersweet because if it was just all bitter, that would be bad news for me. So, okay. So when I'm doing this series, I've been asking people sort of how they started in the program, how they've gone through and sort of where they are today. So where did you guys first hear about the MD-PhD program? Sure. So for undergrad, I went to the University of Kentucky and I worked in a virology lab while I was there. Um, and the graduate student that trained me in the lab was an MD, PhD student. He spent the better part of three years telling me that that's probably what I should do. Um, and I'm so glad that he recommended it because it ended up being really perfect for me. So I kind of just went from there. Okay, so you had someone that was around you that was doing that or was and recommending it to you. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's a common story because not a lot of people, I didn't know anything about it. I knew what medical school was, mm-hmm. but that's about it. I didn't know what this program was. What about you, Tanner? I was at University of Notre Dame and had started working in an organic research lab and also developed um, through work at the Center for Social Concerns um, an affinity toward um, medical issues. And then thought it would be a great idea to combine the two, started searching online for medical schools and options and found that the MSDP existed and kind of applied from there. So not really had anyone to guide me through the process. Oh, wow. So you found it online. Yes. Oh, amazing. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard that one before because I think the MD-PhD websites are kind of buried within medical school websites. You must have really been digging. It took a little while. And also, um, the person who was advising the regular um, MD applicants um, didn't really have much advice for going through the process because not many people from Notre Dame had actually done that before. Oh, my advisor had no idea. Same story. So what? why did you decide to end up applying to the program because it's one thing to find out about it another to be like I'm gonna do this with my whole life. I knew that I loved science and I spent um, a couple years really waffling back and forth between do I want to be a physician or do I want to be a scientist and then pretty much when I I found out that I could do both that seemed like a really good option for me um, because then I didn't have to choose quite as much and I each one could kind of inform the other and Mm -hmm. I think um, something that you'll find kind of when you talk to the population of us is that that's something that we really value 
as kind of that scientific approach to medicine. And my research at Notre Dame was on the total synthesis of a putative anti-cancer agent. And I thought it'd be fantastic to get both sides of the story, not just the research yeah. and not just the medical care, but be able to have that again, echoing what Megan said, inform I, it. I remember having this distinct feeling that I had signed up for the MCAT and I was like, all right, well, I'm gonna take the MCAT. So I guess that settled it. I'm going to do MD PhD instead oh, wow. of just PhD. <laughs> oh, instead of so that's that yeah. was the, the decision it was PhD. I, or MD I decided PhD. to take the MCAT, so it was done. That was it. That, that was, was the it. decision. Yep. Amazing. And has the decision been a good one so far? Yeah, it's been great. I'm yeah. really pleased with how it turned out. Do you think? So I think the idea of merging science and medicine in in that way is very attractive as an idea. But do you think in practice it's actually? Um, played out the way you thought it might? Do you think science really informs medicine and medicine sort of informs science? Oh man, I, I think certainly it does. I don't know that it does in the same way that I expected. Um, so I, for my research, uh, I'm a, a basic virologist. I am interested in questions of how viruses interact with cells. And of course that's happening in human hosts, right? But um, how a virus modifies a cellular process may or may not be exactly related to the disease that it causes in the humans. Right. Right. So you have to do a little bit of kind of careful thinking about the questions that you ask um, and how they can be relevant to human health. And certainly understanding pathogens and understanding how cells work can give us all sorts of information um, that can end up having ramifications in human health. And for my PhD project, I focus on a mouse model that recapitulated what we see in human colorectal cancer development. So it was very much informed by what we see in the patient population and with the same caveats, though, um, making sure that what we're seeing from a histology standpoint or what yeah. is actually replicating what we see in human histology. Yeah. That's sort of been my experience, too. And I think something really similar to what you said, Megan, like, the questions you answer on a daily basis aren't actually medical questions. Mm -hmm. They're really basic science questions. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, you could end up with something like a clinical trial happening because of the work that you've done in the past. And and I think we're also, MD-PhDs are like acutely aware of the transition and the relevance to medicine. Um, I don't know if people that aren't in medicine, they don't actually know exactly what is going to need to get done <laughs> for this to actually be in the clinic. Um, they just think, oh, this will probably help someone someday at some point. It almost makes you bilingual, right? So you can speak science and you can speak medicine and you right. can go back and forth between the two groups of people and kind of translate what it is that's important or what it is that you've learned from the other side. Yeah, I find that so true. Although I'm, I don't know if I'm fluent in either language yet. <laughs> I still have I think a ways I'm to just, go. <laughs> just still learning. I'm just like inefficiently speaking both languages. Okay, so to take a couple steps back then, so you decide you're going to do this with your career and your life. Why did you end up coming to Vanderbilt then? Um, there's so many different MSTPs and MD-PhD programs. Um, why Vanderbilt? One thing for me, especially as I was looking at the programs across the country, was looking for places that had um, cancer centers. Um, just because where I was leaning in my research, both an undergraduate and wanted to continue into my graduate phase as well. The thing I remember most, though, about my interview at Vanderbilt was walking away and feeling like this could be a part of my family. Like, just a good feeling of where the program would be able to support me throughout that, those transitions. I, I think, had a very similar experience, um, but in looking for programs, I was 
you know, I, I only applied to places where I knew I would get good training. Um, but the feeling that I had walking away from here was that it was incredibly collaborative, incredibly supportive, and that you really were joining, um, you know, like a family of people that were um, had, you know, similar interests to you. So I remember leaving my interview and I called my mom and said, I'm going to go to Vanderbilt next year. And she said, well, you've got to, you know, you got to get into Vanderbilt first and then you can maybe make the decision of if you can go. So that was in, I think, November. And then the second that my, that I got the, the phone call that I had gotten in, I, you yeah. know, wrote my letter, accepted and withdrew my applications from other places. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I think Vanderbilt has that effect. I don't know why. But uh, I, I think when people come here, I feel like they, they can see themselves here. Um, and it's not because of the research. They have, you know, the, the one lab that they want to join is here or the, the one professor in medicine is here. It's that the people that are in the program, they can see themselves being friends with and enjoying time with. Mm-hmm. That was one of the reasons why I ended up picking it as well. Yeah. I just felt like it was a place I wanted to be. I didn't really know the specifics of the curriculum or anything. I just mm-hmm. wanted to be there. Yeah. And I had something very similar. I just like was like, all right, I'm done with these other. I'm That's not interviewing anymore. It's, we're finished. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. I, I love how something like that makes that makes really makes the decision and not some, you know, particular specification about something in the program because we're here for eight years. Mm-hmm. It's a long time. You may, but you might as well have fun when you're there you with people that you. You got to pick a place you, you're going to be happy. Yeah. You know. Okay. So we're here at Vanderbilt and we'll just skip through medical school right the first two years of medical school because those are just a blur anyway so (laughs) and long ago (laughs) and long ago um but i want to hear briefly about your time in graduate school both a little bit about what you worked on but then also maybe a little bit more about why i'm interviewing you guys both together (laughs) um, and not separately sort of your stories and how they've you know interwoven into one another all right, you were here first. Should you go first? No, uh, ladies first. All right, fair <laughs> enough. Um, so, uh, we talked a little bit about when I came to Vanderbilt and how much I loved the feeling of Vanderbilt. Right. So, um, Tanner was originally a year ahead of me, so he was a first year when I was interviewing. Um, I did not meet him during my interview, um, and we already talked about that. The second I got the phone call, I committed to coming here, um, and then I met Tanner second look weekend, and we were pretty much instant friends. Um, and we're friends for a long time and then started dating many years later and then got married like three years ago (laughs) (laughs) so that's why the two of us are here together um which i think is i don't know it's been it's been really fun but i think it's funny people think that all of our conversations are about science and that we know exactly what the other one does and while i can tell you like a cursory maybe paragraph of what it is that tanner studies you know the the intricacies are are beyond me because our fields are different right? right so that's been entertaining. And I think it speaks also to the long, like you're in the program for such a long time, life happens. Yeah. And that's why you have to find a place that fits you and make sure that it's a great place that you want to have your life happen in. Um, and yeah, it's, it's been fun. It's nice to be able to say like, oh, my Western blot failed today. <laughs> and he knows what that means. So that's pretty cool. I don't have to like explain what a Western blot is. Um, not that I wouldn't be happy to do that to anyone that needed that, but um, it's nice. You know, I've explained Western blots yeah. before, though, and it's I still great. don't think people yeah. get it. <laughs> <laughs> there's I don't think there's some understand. blobs, and you need the blobs to be in a certain orientation, you know, right. to have a good science day. Big blobs versus little blobs. Yeah. And orientation of the blobs. It's and orientation important. of the blobs. 
<laughs> That's very important in science. Um, but you asked about kind of what we studied during graduate school. Yeah. So I worked in the laboratory of Mark Dennison, and we study coronaviruses, which are um, they're responsible for about 30% of the common cold, uh, different strains of coronaviruses, and also um, the SARS outbreak in 2001 and the MERS outbreak more recently in the Middle East. Um, so the lab in general is interested in questions of coronavirus replication and virus evolution. Um, something cool about coronaviruses is that they're the largest RNA viruses, and they're the only RNA viruses known to have proofreading activity. So um, something that we know about having RNA as your genetic makeup versus DNA is it's a lot more error prone, mm-hmm. um, and that sometimes can lead to you know mutations that can either gain functions or lose functions. And coronas are so big that they're kind of right at this level of needing to have a proofreader um, to be successful. So that Mm -hmm. was something that was discovered in my lab. Um, But the question that I was really interested in is um, when I joined the lab, there were these live cell movies of um, cells infected with coronavirus. The the one that I used most often was murine hepatitis virus, which is a, a model virus we use in the lab. When you infected the cells with the virus, you noticed that their um, their cell edges started to do something called membrane ruffling. So my whole job in the lab was why does this happen and what is it doing? Mm-hmm. So it turns out that that ruffling was indicative of something called macropenocytosis, mm-hmm. which essentially means that the cell non-specifically scoops in stuff from the environment mm-hmm. that it can then use in whatever way that it wants. And as you can imagine, this process is sort of nonspecific and is a really sneaky way for a lot of different sorts of viruses to get into cells. Mm. So that had been previously shown. Um, But my virus was doing this at five or six or seven hours after infection. So it certainly was not using it for entry into the cells. Mm -hmm. Um, It turned out to be important for replication. Um, If you shut it down, the virus did less well. Um, So what I ended up hypothesizing is that this was a mechanism um, not for virus to get in, but maybe for virus to spread to a neighboring cell. Because you can imagine that it could hitch a ride on one of these long projections um, that's protruding from the cell and infect a neighbor cell without actually being released into the environment and being detected by the immune system. Hmm. So. Wow. That's where I left it. So, the, oh, I have so many questions. <laughs> um, Excellent. <laughs> but I don't want to get too nerdy. Well, I hope I have answers. So. <laughs> so. It was for exits. The virus was using it to leave leave mm-hmm. the cell. Yep. Why couldn't the virus just leave the cell? Well, the virus can also just leave the cell. Yeah. We think that it's probably um, like an accessory mechanism. Okay. Yeah. So, but do all viruses do something like this, or is it just? No, all viruses. This is actually the first um, instance of macropenocytosis in virology that was not for entry. Wow. Yeah. So it was unique to was, this murine hepatitis virus. Exactly. Did you look at other coronaviruses? Do they also you do know, this? You know, we also worked with SARS a bit. Yeah. Um, and while we couldn't exactly do all of the assays, we could do some of the assays just because of the biosafety containment uh, sorts of requirements for SARS. Yeah. Uh, and our evidence does look like SARS uses a mechanism like this, too. Amazing. Yeah. See, that's really cool. And it does seem actually clinically relevant, at least in my mind, right. because this is a simple process that's going on in cells. Mm-hmm that if you inhibited with something for a short period of time, yeah. you could potentially block exit 
of the virus or exactly. substantially. And that's something that you, you know, we think so often. Um, so you think about flu and Tamiflu, right? So um, for the listeners, you know, you're familiar with influenza. We have a couple of antivirals for influenza and they block entry for the most part. Um, some of them actually block the, the cleavage mm-hmm. of the, the virion leaving the cell. Um, but we have to use that within the first 48 hours of infection or else it doesn't help. Right. So we're always looking for kind of conserved viral strategies that we could target um, that could inhibit a wide variety of viruses. So common colds are not caused by one virus. They're caused by hundreds of viruses. Um, so we would need a common mechanism to make that go away. Right. Wow. Yeah. We, could, we could even talk more after. But that's, that's what I'm saying. I want to get more to see what, what Tanner was working on. So I spoke a little earlier that um, I worked on mouse models of colorectal cancer um, in Dan Beecham's lab. Um, in the Beecham laboratory, we focused on TGF-beta signaling, which is implicated in about 70% of all colorectal cancer cases. My gene of interest was SMAD4, which is mutated about 15 to 30% of the time in colorectal cancer cases, and is implicated in poor prognosis and distant metastasis. So my task was to try to understand a little bit more of the biology of how loss of SMAD4 function drove these poor prognostic signs. What we found was that there was a regulation of beta-catenin, which is implicated in the central pathway for pathogenesis of colorectal cancer, by SMAD4, and that whenever you lose SMAD4, beta-catenin gets bumped up, wind signaling gets bumped up, and then you have this grossly um, more aggressive phenotype associated with it. Um, also for my project, I had to do a lot of mouse colonoscopies. Okay. So if your mouse ever needs a colonoscopy, I'm your guy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if your mouse, for all those people with mouse pets out there, uh, worried about colon cancer in mice. <laughs> it shouldn't happen out, out in the wild, but right. in case it does. <laughs> they have a mutant SMAD4 mouse that they've picked up and made a pet. <laughs> um, so, and what we're working on right now is trying to understand SMAD4 and normal homeostasis. Um, so understanding how it interacts with the immune system, microbiota, and also um, just general um, differentiation along the intestinal crypt. Amazing. So you guys have ended up doing clearly very different things, infectious disease, cancer, um, but very clinically relevant, it seems like, types of research, I think. I hope so. Maybe I'm biased now when I think everything that's sort of in medicine is clinically relevant. And then I read something about frogs, and I'm like, eh, you know, <laughs> frogs. Um, but anyway, that's, that's awesome. That's very cool. But now I know you guys have moved on. You guys have both PhD'd, mm-hmm. and you've now moved on. Um, and you, you even almost, well, basically have even MD'd as well, <laughs> almost. Almost. A uh, couple weeks left. Um, so can you talk about where you are in the program, the MD-PhD program, this eight years, kind of two years of med school, four years of PhD, and then two years of med school again, um, and, and you're at the tail end. So can you talk about where, where you are in the program and then what's next, what you're about to do? Yeah, so Ben alluded to, we are a couple of weeks away from finishing up um, the very end of medical school. So I'm on my very last rotation as a medical student right now, which is a little crazy to think about. Um, And we went through the whole match process for residency this year um, and are delighted that we are moving to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania um, to the UPMC hospital system. So I'll be working at the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh uh, in pediatrics. Hmm. And then Tanner is going to be a pathologist. Working at the various hospitals within the UPMC system. 
So we're excited about that coming up. We're, you know, bittersweet, of course, about leaving Nashville. We've been here a long time. Yeah. We love Nashville and Vanderbilt. Um, so maybe we'll come back again this way someday. Right. Yeah. Are you, how do you feel about this new transition that you're about to make? Um, it's, I think, a little different right now because we're at this, with the transition. Yeah. Um, there's also a lot of, I'm going to say, adulting happening at the moment. That's awesome. Where we're thinking about like mortgages, how we're going to move, how we're going to do this all in a very compressed time frame. Yeah. So I think I feel prepared for the next transition as far as like going to pathology and like the great mentors I've had here has at least prepared me for my first day of intern year. Same time though, realizing that real life is also happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that's a little stressful. You know, I think I'm really ready for more responsibility. Um, I certainly don't know everything, and I think that that's a, a healthy and appropriate attitude to have. Um, there's always something that you can learn from the people you work with and from your patients, and I you know, have a long way to go, but I'm excited to kind of get going on that. I feel like the thing that makes you feel like you've progressed more than anything is when you work with a, a younger student on one of your services, um, and you realize that you have the answers to some of their questions, right? And then you're like, oh, like this isn't this isn't so bad. I actually, I know some things that I can share. That's awesome. So that's when you, I think, really realize that you've learned something. Or when you can answer a patient's questions or a patient's family's questions, that's been really rewarding for me this year. And I feel like that's just gonna keep getting yeah. better. One of the things I've really enjoyed about going to lab was that I feel like I can contribute. And I don't feel like I can contribute in medicine yet. And so I imagine the transition to getting to the contribution stage in medicine must feel really great. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something, heads up for you, that's hard on the way back to medicine from science, right? So year three of medicine, um, you're not to that point of autonomy, right? And you just came from this place where you know the most, more than anyone in the world, about (laughs) the one little tiny thing that you studied. Right. Yeah. And that's never seems to be relevant exactly to uh, what's going on with a patient's life. Yes, <laughs> I'm sure at least that third year <laughs> takes a while for you to feel like your uh, virology research ends up being very relevant. You know, too. occasionally I'll get a patient with a coronavirus infection and we really? can talk all about it. You can talk about memory. You can even show them the videos like this is what's going on. Yeah, yeah. none of them have wanted to see my videos. No. Yeah. <laughs> have you asked your patients? Have you, have you told them that that's what you studied? When I have told some patients that that's what yeah. I studied. Yeah. Some of them are confused when you see them and they're like, why is a PhD seeing me today? Oh, okay. I don't have that kind of problem. Right. Yeah. I don't need that kind of doctor. No, I don't, you're, not, <laughs> you're not in fact the right kind of doctor. Oh, man. Okay, so the future, we'll, we'll see what happens in the future, but it sounds very exciting. Um, and you know, stress comes along with excitement, I think. But I can, I'm still four years away and I can, I just get so excited when I see you guys that have finish the eight-year journey and you're ready to move on to the next stage and so it's very it's cool. possible people make it's it possible. to the end people make it to the you end you can do it too did it feel like the longest thing you've ever done or did it feel like time went by pretty quickly like i think when i was joining the program people said eight years that's insane that's insane that's for, that's gonna take forever i don't feel like it's really eight years is the eight years and honestly i feel like i'm doing something new every two years anyway um, but did it feel, you know, monstrously long to you guys? Or I actually have not felt like, again, it was just more like this is part of the process, this is part of me growing, more so than like this capsule of eight years, like thinking of that from an undergrad standpoint where you're like, 
this is a long time for me to commit to something like this. But for me, it's flown by. Well, and in our line of work, the learning isn't finished, right? Like Mm -hmm. if you go out into practice and 20 years from now just decide to stop reading everything, that's not a good attitude to have. And it's not going to make you a good doctor and it's not going to make you a good scientist. So I feel like really we're just setting ourselves up for kind of lifetime learning. Um, So, you know, we've we've jumped through this kind of hoop or this hurdle, but... um, it just training you to be how you need to think for kind of the rest of your life. Yeah. And is there, do you feel like there's going to be a huge transition from being a fourth year medical student to being a resident or you've already sort of started on this path of being a resident and maybe you've done a sub I or something like that where, where you know some of the skills. Right. Um, One of the things for pathology, I was able to set up a sub I here where I was just slotted in as an intern. Yeah. And it was great for a month just to be able to gross my own specimens and sign out with intending and just get a feeling for what it will be like. So I'm very grateful for the people at Vanderbilt for allowing me to have those opportunities. Yeah. I, yes and no. I I also did a sub I. You know, I loved doing a sub I. I liked to feel like I had kind of more responsibility for patients. Um, I got to put in orders, that kind of thing. Um, I keep asking people... How, how could you have been better prepared for intern year? And I get a lot of nothing can prepare you for intern year. So just kind of one of those things that you have to trial by fire. You know, I never held the pager. I've never gotten hammer paged about someone's constipation or whatever. Yeah. That's not something that I've experienced yet. Hammer paged so, about constipation. Yeah, so I feel like, Doesn't you know, these are, these are the things I have to look forward to in the future. Yeah. Um, but with that comes, you know, I'm excited to have uh, kind of one more level of responsibility for people too yeah so where do you guys do you guys hope to be in a certain place let's say in 10 15 years from now is there career goals that you guys have and why you're embarking on such a long journey so i want to do pediatric infectious disease uh and i want to see patients about 20 percent of the time and the rest of the time i would like to run um an investigative team interested in kind of questions of virology and cell biology uh in some capacity um, so we'll be at an academic medical center with a children's hospital, yeah. most likely, uh, city to be determined, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested in, uh, for pathology, going to fellowships for molecular and gastrointestinal. And then I think with this whole advent of next-gen sequencing and trying to translate those findings into something clinically relevant or clinically actionable is where I see my research sort of heading in the future. Oh, excellent. So y- you both are continuing research throughout your career. Mm-hmm. That's the plan. Yeah. As long as someone will let me. As long as someone will let you. Yeah. We'll give you the money to do it. <laughs> that's super important, yeah. I guess. Uh, well, that's great to hear. And I guess the last question I have for you guys today is, what do you think is, what do you think is the most valuable thing you've learned or can take away from eight years in an MD-PhD program, whether it's about science, medicine, or whether it's just about life? What's something you think you really learned? Being nice to people goes a really long way. And that's both on the science side and the medicine side. I've had so many people help me out with either assays that I didn't know how to do or um, help me troubleshoot experiments just, you know, because I knocked on the door and asked nicely. And they were always more than willing to help me, which was amazing. Um, And that's the same, you know, on the medicine side. I've had so many people that have either taken extra time to teach me something or, um, you know, a nurse taking time to give me an extra report or help me with some wire that I accidentally knocked loose. You know, uh, I think that's just kind of a 
golden rule, universal truth, um, still true in science and medicine. And it's amazing how small our worlds are getting too when you start getting to these upper levels where you start having a reputation that precedes you. So that being nice to someone actually comes back around too. Um, so I can echo that. Um, for me, it was being comfortable saying, I don't know. And not resting in that I don't know, but making having that push me to want to understand more about my patients, more about those clinical problems, more about my research. So I think being comfortable with saying I don't know, but letting it still push me. Wow, that was, that was very insightful, both of you. <laughs> well, that's all the time we have today. Um, so thank you guys so much for coming on. <laughs> <laughs>